Welcome to CCA on the Air podcast. This is Kate Derrick, Communications Director for Complete College America. Today, we are excited to bring you a keynote panel recorded live at Future Ready, CCA's 2023 annual convening in Las Vegas. You'll hear from higher education leaders talking about the ways they are preparing their campuses and most importantly, their students for the future. You can see more content from our annual convening at completecollege.org. Now let's hear from CCA President Yolanda Watson-Spiva, who moderated the panel. We are joined this morning by three leaders who are forward-thinking and have stood out for their future-ready ideas. They've each helped to transform institutions to look ahead and help make hard decisions for the best possible student outcomes. So I'm pleased they're able to join us here today. I'd like to briefly introduce our panelists. Uh, first, I'll start with uh, Maria Aguiano. Thank you, Maria, for being here. Since September, December 2020, Maria has been an executive vice president of the Learning Enterprise at Arizona State University. A first-generation college graduate, Maria has served as CEO of the Minerva Project and Vice Chancellor of Planning and Budget of the University of California, Riverside, respectively. And she serves on the Board of Regents for the University of California system, the James Irvin Foundation, Kip Foundation, the Campaign for College Opportunity, and the Alliance for Social Innovation, guiding strategy and models that bolster economic mobility for underrepresented and underserved communities. Thank you for being here. Next, allow me to introduce Suzanne Elise Walsh. Suzanne became the 19th president of Bennett College on August 1st, 2019. She was most recently deputy director of post-secondary success for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, leading and developing a team and a portfolio of over $70 million in post-secondary investments in institutional transformation in the United States. She also previously served in leadership roles with the Lumina Foundation for Education and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you so much for joining us, Suzanne. And we're also happy to welcome Chris Meyer. Chris is a US Army officer who currently serves as the head of the Department of English and Philosophy at the United States Military Academy, West Point. The department, <laughs> thank you. The department teaches three courses in the core curriculum, first year composition, literature, and philosophy, and ethical reasoning. It offers two majors, majors, English and philosophy, and oversees the Cadet Humanities Forum. Prior to serving as the department head, Chris served as an associate dean for strategy and initiatives. He also serves as a reviewer for the Quality Assurance Commons and a member of the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, the Committee on Applicant and Candidate Institutions. He's a former, former Teagle Assessment Scholar and Association of Professional Futurists Emerging Fellow. Welcome and thank you all for joining me here today. For my first question, I'm gonna ask this to all of the panelists. Um, the big question we're asking here at this conference is, what will colleges for tomorrow look like and how can institutions become future ready? So if you could please say a little bit about yourself and your work and how it relates to this concept of your institution becoming future ready. Maria? Great, well good morning everyone. Maria Anguiano, um, I think in the introduction, the Executive Vice President of Arizona State University and also serve on the Board of Regents of the University of California. So ASU has about 175,000 students and 450,000 learners, which is what we call um, the ecosystem of <coughs> folks that are learning with ASU and non-degree programs. 
and UC has 300,000 students. So these are you know, big, big systems with a lot of students. And honestly, if you had asked young Frontera me, you know, I grew up in San Diego and Tijuana, uh, crossing the border back and forth, and my whole family only had maybe a sixth grade education. Like literally, there was not one person in my family that had more than a sixth grade education. If they, they were to ask me what I was sitting here, I mean, they would be like, what is that? I don't even know what, what, what you're talking about. Um, and so for me, when I think about, you know, what do these institutions look like going forward, um, I look around this room and, and they're gonna look like what we design them to be mm. together, right? Because um, ultimately it's people that make change. And I think it's important to have leaders that have a diverse set of experiences coming into these positions because with the diversity of ideas, um, we're able to create different options for students. At the end of the day, if we're gonna be future ready, that means being equitable, as you mentioned earlier uh, today. And that means having different types of offer options for yes. students. That means designing things differently. And how can you design things differently if you don't know what it's like to have applied to college not really knowing what it is? If you don't know what it's like to have applied for financial aid gone letters and been like, can I afford to go or not afford to go? Mm -hmm. What's this making a choice over a $500 difference in your financial aid letter? There's all these hidden things about college that make it so difficult for students to complete. So having leaders like here that know those things, that recognize them, and are working every single day to change um, and create just our new institutions. I think that's what uh, it's going to be. And happy to share more, but I'll stop there for now. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Um, so Bennett, called, I love that it was ASU then Bennett because we are a micro <laughs> college. Like they're mega, we're micro. <laughs> And I made that term up, by the way, just it's not really, I'm, I'm, re I'm reinventing a category or I'm inventing a category. So I say we're micro in size and macro in impact. We're deliberately small so that we can wrap ourselves around our students. And because when, once we decided to be deliberately small, and by the way, not small in the terms of the U.S. Department of Education, 5,000, I mean under 1,000, like way under 1,000. And um, what's important about that is I think that there's a diverse need of institutions mm -hmm. because mega institutions are not for every student. Um, we are one of only two historically black colleges for women in the country and it is really important for us to be able to wrap ourselves. We have a lot of students who are like you, you know, first generation, 75% um, of our students are Pell, 100% of our students receive financial aid. There is no family that writes us a full freight check. Mm -hmm. And so being able to support students with those kinds of needs, we have to be small. Mm -hmm. And so um, our retention rate is at 90% after it had been hovering for five years um, in the 50s and dipped into the 40s twice. Mm. Uh, and, and so by being small, declaring that, I think that's been critical. And I think, you know, when I think about the, the future, what does the, the future of higher education look like? It's all the stuff we say every time we all get together, but we actually have to do it for real. So it's being nimble. It's looking at our data, but not looking at our data and saying, let's do what everybody else is doing. It's looking at our data and saying, let's do what's right for our students. Mm -hmm. So I think you really have to know who your students are and really then curate that experience for them. 
But I think the institutions of the future, like we've redone, I think a number of you have probably done this too, right? We got rid of the 16-week semester because that's too much. We reduced cognitive load. Um, I stole a model from another independent college in, um, in Nevada. Oh, oh, hi. <laughs> Actually, I just realized, oh, hi. Um, and I think it's, you know, and that seems to have worked really well for our students. So they do two, they're, they're mini-mesters, that's what we call them. They do two weeks, seven weeks, seven weeks. They average one class during the two-week session, and then during the seven weeks, they av average two classes. But the point of that is to say, how do we rethink the structure? Again, we've been saying that forever, but mm -hmm. we have to do it. Um, and so I think the, the institutions of the future and how do you become future ready, it is adding people like I loved in your bio, you're, you're a futurist of some kind, that's fancy. Um, we need more of those in higher ed, and we need to be able to look forward, take some risks, and um, really wrap ourselves around the students that we have. Absolutely, Chris. A, a bit about West Point. Um, we educate, train, and inspire cadets so that they're developed into the Army's future leaders. All of our students have a, a scholarship. They don't pay tuition, and they receive um, a, a small stipend and, and food and uniform allowances to, during their uh, four month or 47 months there. Um, and during the summers, they're engaged in military training and academic uh, experiences as well. And then once they graduate, they all become Army officers, about a thousand a year, so that they, everyone coming into West Point knows exactly what, or generally what they're going to do following graduation, and they have a five-year commitment to service um, after graduation. And they go out to different branches in the Army we have uh, 17 different branches. Um, we're, and we're fortunate in my department to reach them three times in the first two years in our core courses. But then also, uh, West Point's an Army post, so many of us live um, within a mile of where the cadets live, so it's really a small community uh, to help them uh, adjust to the military, but also to complete the program we have for them, which we have about 85% graduation rate. Um, I think I'll touch on two things Suzanne said about institutions of the future. I think we need to see, and I think we will see more distinctive institutions with unique missions that meet the needs of a particular subset of, um, of student, and that the mission really goes through everything, academic student experience, and, and it really uh, provides the student holistic experience. And then I think also flexibility is going to be key so that we, um, we, we give students different paths through our, our, um, our institutions and, and maybe allow them, if, if the residential institution, to do some online and, um, and take uh, mini semesters and those sorts of things. And also to capture those who have some college but no degree yet. Um, and maybe there's distinctive institutions that, that meet them. Um, and I think to, to be future ready, um, I think institutions really need to systematically explore the future, the trends, the signals of change, to consider what they are and how they might interact and what they mean for the students and how best institutions can, can either prepare for these futures, meet the needs of their students, and also innovate in the opportunities that those uh, futures provide. Yeah, and what you saying that, I was thinking also about you saying, Suzanne, about curating the experiences for your students. As we have an increasingly diverse population of students, give me some examples, and this is for any one of you, of some specific strategies you've implemented in response to 
the changing demographic of your student body, whether it's 100% Pell um, enrollment or whatever the case may be, are, are there specific things you've done to say, hey, we've got to do something different to respond to the students that are coming to the institution now? We, um, we no longer do career fairs. Ooh. Um, <laughs> that was my controversial statement <laughs> of the day. Um, you know, employers love, they love HBCUs right now, um, and they call it, like, everyone wants to come, they want to have a career fair, or they want to, like, set up their table in the cafeteria, and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Every single time, the employers basically, maybe if they're lucky, they leave with one student. Right. Right. And so what we've started to do is to say to them, what is it that you want? Or, or employers will say, we want a list of all your accounting majors. How many are you going to pick? one, then you don't need a list of all of our accounting majors. We can both curate for the student and the employer the right match. So we've gone into the matchmaking business. And so instead of having, you know, the, the company set up the table, we do it occasionally, but we try to avoid it because what we try to do, a concrete example is there's a large accounting firm in North Carolina that uh, wanted all of our accounting students and was only going to pick one. And when our VP of Academic Affairs asked them, what are you looking for in that student? It really wasn't necessarily somebody with accounting skills, mm -hmm. but great quantitative skills. It could have been anybody. So our VP matched a student who, was, who is computer science and outstanding in mathematics. That student would have never thought, oh, I'll go work in an accounting firm. And the accounting mm -hmm. firm never would have looked at her. Mm -hmm. It was the greatest experience. And she, she learned a lot. They learned a lot, and so I think that's what we have to do, is we have to be able to introduce our students to things that they never would have thought of, so they have to trust us to say, like, this will be good for you, mm -hmm. and or you may learn that you don't like something. So I think that's part of what we've tried to do, is to really, really, really personalize, because we're so small, you know, we, we can do something like that. Personalize, yes. So as you think about your institution, how do you create environments that foster that type of innovation, critical thinking, and adaptability, and preparing students for careers that don't even exist yet, right? So um, you talked about a student who didn't know this opportunity might be aligned with their major and vice versa, mm -hmm. but what about those jobs that we don't even know will be the jobs of the future? How do we prepare them? How do we make sure that the majors and our general core uh, uh, requirements are still responsive to what the future is gonna hold? What types of things are you guys doing on that front? So we've worked with our academic leaders to introduce them to things that, that are possible in the future. So um, one year we gathered them all together at an on-site and gave them, uh, each group had three or four cards, and one of the cards said we had to increase enrollment by 50%, another talked about a uh, congressional mandate to increase the graduation rate to 95%, another talked about um, getting $500 million to do with as we pleased. And really, just to get them to think about these possibilities and, and what they would mean if they were, if they all happened at once, and what they'd mean for for West Point and how we'd react. And then we, over the next couple of years, we did similar things. We um, one year we talked, to, we got a group to provide uh, examples of trends in different areas um, related to to military service, uh, higher education, employment, and society. And a lot of it was pre-COVID, mm -hmm. so you know, things like remote work were just starting to take effect, and um, even some of, we were starting to see some of the loneliness that students were feeling uh, because of, of maybe it's excessive time on the computer. 
And, and so just trying to get our, our academic leaders open-minded about, about what was possible in the future. And then um, recently, we've, we've gone through a process where we've done some reorganization to address things like uh, autonomous systems and getting moving the philosophy program with the law program next year to the focus on ethics and law of war, mm -hmm. and then also to focus on things that the Army really cares about now. Um, people are surprised that the Army thinks a lot about space, but um, we are thinking a lot about space. We have a space science minor, but also sustainability. So we, we're putting our civil and environmental um, majors together in one department, which is a new thing. So really just keeping people informed about um, what is likely in the future and what the interactions of different things might mean and what it means for us and how we need to prepare our graduates for that world. Yeah, Maria, yeah, Suzanne? I, well, you know, I wanted to comment on, on back to helping students be successful and you know, ASU has been, I think, voted num number one in innovation for nine years in a row. And, and one of the, the reasons for that is our ability to really provide the, the optionality that we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, we have 80,000 of our students are fully on campus. We have another 95,000 that are completely online. And then we have seven micro-satellite campuses out in different areas um, in Arizona and California and Hawaii and BC. And one of the, again, why create so many options is because back to your point, Suzanne, about how different students need different things. Um, if you basically say the only way you can go to a research university, again, speaking solely for public research universities, which I think have a unique place in the world and not, no, like not all institutions have to be like those, but mm -hmm. for public research institutions that have to really think about the entire community, to say that you can only go to a research university by moving and living right next to it, you're by definition excluding so many people. Yes. Um, and so when I think about, for example, our uh, online program, the average age is 28. Mm -hmm. We've graduated over 10,000 um, Starbucks partners. Mm -hmm. That means people working at Starbucks 20 to 40 hours a week, living all over the country. They are not going to move to Tempe, Arizona. And so this is a way for us to be able to create optionality for students mm -hmm. that they are able to finish a college degree wherever they are. And the satellite campuses provide um, that in-person support. So for example, we have one in Yuma, Arizona, which is basically three hours from any other major city. Mm -hmm. Students there said, I don't want to choose between my family, my community, and going to college. Mm -hmm. We brought college to them. Yes. Right, and so that's an example of going to meeting learners where they're at. Absolutely, love that. I think they'll, um I'm just curious if I can even skip. How many of you are working in a job that is exactly tied to what you thought you were going to do when you were an undergraduate? Let me get a scan. What? Where, where is that one person? We need to, we need to bring no. that person up here. Um, you know, I mean, and, and even the jobs you're in, even if you're in, you know, if you're in higher education, if you're in one of the partner organizations, your exact job, maybe it existed, but did it exist exactly as it is today? Mm -hmm. You know, probably not. And so what I, I'm so excited as somebody who leads a liberal arts institution, I'm just so excited that, that West Point has philosophy and like, I'm like, oh my God, look at you. Yeah. Whereas I think so often we're all told, get rid of, what do you need with a philosophy major? Well, if the military's, there, there's a use. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that, so I would say that to prepare people for the future, this is where I pretend that I know things about the military, just FYI. So I love the, I love the idea of VUCA, you know, volatile, yeah. uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I think that's from the Army, but it's military. It's, yeah, from and so I love that concept because I think what our job is, is our job is to prepare people for that volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous future, which means not saying we know exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. If we try to pretend to our students or our legislators or our funders, like, I know exactly the future, that's not going to help anybody. Mm -hmm. And so the question that we have is what do we teach that allows students to remain nimble, mm -hmm. that allows them to adjust, that allows them to be like all of you and say, well, it doesn't matter what the new things are. I can, I can eventually get retrained. So I think higher ed in the future has to be nimble enough to have people coming in and out for upskilling and reskilling. Uh, and then I would say the future is interdisciplinary. Mm. So the more that students have exposure to multiple opportunities to cross, to work you know, in a cross or transdisciplinary way, I think that's, that's how we prepare. But I don't think, it's, we don't prepare by trying to predict. AI, we don't need more coders, right? There's that great article from Harvard Business Review from last year, and the gentleman who wrote it talked about, we need um, chat GPT whisperers. Who knows how to write a great prompt? Because if you know how to write a great prompt, and you probably went to a liberal arts institution, if you do, you're probably an English major, um, you're the one who's going to win. Yeah. It's not the coders. No offense to the coders. But. No, I appreciate that. And as I was listening to you all, we were intentional in, in, in assembling a group of leaders who come from diverse institutions, right? So Suzanne, you gave us our new term of micro and macro, yeah. and then the military, but specifically public research university, small liberal arts college, military institution. Two of you have been around for over 100 years, and so you have very storied historical past, which can be a gift and a curse, I guess. So Chris, I want to start with you. As a part of Academics 2052 at West Point, how does the institution navigate the complexities of planning for your 250th anniversary in 2052? What considerations have been taken into account for an institution that was founded in 1802, yeah. which had a very different environmental zeitgeist? Yeah. Um, how do you remain relevant and effective for the future with an institution with that sort of legacy and storied past? I think it's, it's tough, um, especially when um, you think you're doing okay and, and students are coming in and they're doing okay when they graduate. Um, but it, it's always keeping focused on the mission and what, what our purpose is and, and keeping people focused that, that the world outside of West Point is changing a lot. And the Army's fortunate. The, uh, the senior leaders in the Army provide guidance, um, Army 2030, Army 2040, about what the, um, the future environment will be that our graduates will both enter in and then they'll lead in as senior leaders in 2040. So it, it, it's a balance of, of doing what we're doing well and remaining true to our traditions, but always remembering that our big tradition is that we're producing leaders for the Army and that the, the world has changed a lot since 1802. And the, the Academics 2052 was the, what I talked about earlier about getting people engaged in exploring the future. And it's really hard because there's so many things going on at the moment and life is so busy and people are trying to, to help students get through the moment. 
but always spending some time to looking out to the future and seeing what's changing. Mm -hmm. And then I, the first thing I talked about, the cards were, it was fun, but then bringing that and say, what does this mean for how we teach and develop our cadets and, and how we're organized? And I, that's kind of what we're going through now with the reorganization. I think we'll see more, but um, it, again, I think it's always focusing on the mission and why we exist. And because what will happen is, even if things happen for a couple of years, they become tradition. Mm -hmm. And the students are very bad about doing that. So just being able to give up those things to focus on why we exist and who we serve. Absolutely. And Suzanne, on a similar note, Bennett College was founded in 1873, 150 years ago this year. This is an institution with a deep and storied history as well, and it's changed and transformed significantly over the past 150 years. So as an HBCU leader, how do you preserve the strongest parts of your past and your mission while also looking at the future for your students? Um, so when I started this job, uh, I, so I came to this job having just been in Seattle. So in Seattle, so, so I was interviewed by, by a reporter who, this was not her tone, it's just how I heard it. <laughs> so you didn't go to an HBCU, you've never worked at an HBCU, you've never lived in the South, like what do you have to offer? Mm -hmm. that, was, that wasn't her tone, it wasn't the exact question, but that's basically what she said. And my response was to say, you know, one of the great things about HBCUs and one of the great things about the South is that there is a dedication to history mm -hmm. and a deep understanding about tradition and a commitment to all of that but it's sometimes at our peril. And what I bring from the West Coast is a sense of the future, because we may be a little bit more obsessed with the future such that you know, we will tear down a historic building in a heartbeat and not care. So there's, like, there's good things and bad things to that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what I think I bring is Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. And Afrofuturism is grounded in tradition and history and you understand the ancestors but you also look to the future. Yes. And I think that that's what I try to bring to Bennett is, because I love Afrofuturism, I, I love video games, I love comic books, so I bring like this crazy, crazy personality to it all. But I think that's important to, to bring a different perspective that also values and loves the tradition and then also helps to say, okay, but where do, where do we go next? Because if we get to, when I started, people said to me, you have to save Bennett. And then they would give me a long history lesson. And what I finally said was, but you're, the way that you're talking about Bennett makes it sound like I should just put a glass dome over the campus and we should be a museum piece. Mm. Because you're never talking about Bennett in the present and you're never talking about Bennett in the future. So that's where I think it's important for us as HBCUs. We've always got to be grounded in our history and we always have to be grounded in tradition, but not at the expense of where people are overlooking us. They'll call ASU, but they're not going to call an HBCU because ASU projects into the future and projects hope. So we have a priority that's in our strategic direction, which is called being open to and for the future. Love we have to own it. And at the same time, we just celebrate our 150th. We were co-ed when we started and became a women's college in 1926. So we're used to radical. We're used to doing big, you know, big things. And we have to remember that. Absolutely. Maria, you actually have a unique standpoint here because you happen to work in two states, both in Arizona through your work with ASU, but also, as I mentioned in the opener, and in California at the University of California Board of Regents. 
So given the size and diversity of the UC system and ASU, how are you and your colleagues in both areas thinking about future readiness? Yeah, uh, well, so maybe I'll start with some general themes and then go into specifics. You know, I'll say that the first thing we have to acknowledge is that the past has created an equitable present. And mm -hmm. so to keep the status quo is basically saying we want to keep mm -hmm. the inequitable outcomes mm -hmm. that we have today. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important to recognize as we're looking to the future to say, yes, we're committed to our core, right? The charters of public institutions are to serve their states, to serve uh, their learners, and to serve the communities um, where they are. And so those things still remain true today, in the past, and in the future. Mm -hmm. How we do that, mm -hmm. I think, is, is the question, right? And so for UC, we actually just finished uh, a 2050 plan, the regions put together a plan um, to guide UC into the future. And the first recommendation was to reimagine how and where UC happens. And that was important because, again, back to our core, our core is education, knowledge creation. It's mm -hmm. not to have people necessarily living in a residential area for four years. What's the core? The core is actually education. So how do we get that mm -hmm. out to people? How do we get the knowledge out? How do we create economic development for uh, for our communities. And so we think that that'll be an important guiding for the future. A lot of California has been guided by the master plan. The master plan was established in 1960. That's literally 60 years ago. The world looked very different back then than it does today. So we really had to project a future plan to guide the system going forward. Um, for ASU, I feel like we're already living in the future. Um, I think there's a ton of investments in Te technology, and, mm -hmm. and I think the institution really sees itself as tech-enhanced but learner-centric. Mm -hmm. That is, using technology to be able to scale the amount of people uh, that we're able to serve, not just for degree programs, but really thinking about lifelong. That's actually what the learning enterprise is responsible for, mm -hmm. is lifelong learning. Because, Suzanne, you made the point of who's Who's working in a job? I started my, you know, my career as an accountant, and look, yeah. You know, <laughs> That's so, how we met. <laughs> exactly. And so to think about a four-year education is not going to cut it anymore. Things are evolving so quickly that we really have to think about how are we helping students across every career change, every transition in their life, and institutions, especially research institutions, should be focused on serving that whole lifelong. Um, so we're investing heavily into our lifelong learning capabilities to mm -hmm. be future ready because we know that next year our graduates might be, I need a whole new set of skills mm -hmm. and how are we there for them? We're creating that capability now. Yeah, so as you think about that, um, what exogenous factors are you concerned about or are you thinking about? So what are some of the macro trends that you're seeing, whether it's political, economic, environmental, et cetera, that you think are gonna have the biggest impacts on higher education enrollment? Um, in the coming year? I, I mean, I think they all will. I think this being a presidential election year will, will be very challenging for higher ed, and, mm -hmm. and um, it could drive down. Higher ed could be in the spotlight. This, the, the latest news about the UPenn president resigning um, might give higher ed a negative image among some groups, and which could drive some people away over the coming year as it becomes a campaign issue. Um, and, and then if the economy, um, if there's a recession, traditionally that's been uh, something that drives up enrollment. But again, it's seeing how those two things interact. Um, 
there's no, really no telling what will happen with those two. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you said earlier that you have a partnership with the National Clearinghouse. I think that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like pay attention to their data mm -hmm. because I think that as we as we see the trend, we all know a demographic shift is coming. Um, and I think that part of the reason it was important for us to declare we'd be a micro college is it meant that we don't obsess over enrollment. Mm -hmm. We obsess in the in that we know there's a number we have to hit. Um, but it's not a huge number, and it's not about constant growth all the time, but it was a manageable number, and I made it for, I made that decision really for a business decision as well so that we can budget and live within that, within our means. But I think that demographic shift is coming, and we're not really, I think, prepared for, for that decrease, the, actual, the, de the coming decrease in enrollment. Uh, I think in North Carolina, see, so the North Carolina, like in North Carolina, there are, um, a couple of our large state institutions have just announced that they're laying folks off, that they didn't hit their remote. So I think that's going to be big. I think the other thing is just our, in that 18-year-old, you know, fresh from, from high school group, are they really interested in higher education as it's currently constructed? Mm -hmm. Are they willing to take on debt? Because even though in a recession, it used to be, you know, historically it's been great for higher education. It also was great because people were willing to take on debt. Right. And I just do not see that. Yeah. So I think, I think those sorts of shifts are going to make um, a really, really big difference in, in terms of where we go in, in higher education. We have to pay attention. The last quick thing that I'll say is sometimes, and I got this, any, any uh especially black folks in the audience who remember Jet Magazine, but anybody who remembers Jet Magazine. I was once uh, on a panel with the new CEO, because they still exist. I thought you were going to say you were once in Jet Magazine. I mean, I'm just going <laughs> to spread that rumor. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> if any of you want to Our students also have spread the rumor that I'm friends with Beyonce. It's fine. I mean, I've never met her, but so I'm fine. Um, but anyway, the, I, I was once on a panel with him, and he said that he is the... Um, the CEO of a however old Jet is, like, you know, a 100-year or whatever startup. And I love that. I like, if I love that, and I say now, I'm the CEO of a 150-year-old startup. Yep. And I think that that's how we have to think about higher education, is you have to constantly be in that startup mode, mm -hmm. because then you are paying very close attention to all of those exogenous things that you almost can't predict mm -hmm. as well. So, um, yes, we should all be however many year old startup uh, mindsets as we move forward. Yeah, oh, one other thing I would add is, is I, I think if you were to ask someone if people need to keep learning, mm. people would say, of course, right? And so when they're asking about the value of higher education, I think what they're asking about is this price and structure worth it? And that's mm -hmm. different than do we need higher education, do we need mm -hmm. post-secondary mm -hmm. training? So I think that's an important thing. And you know, it's fun, people talk about the demographic shift, but yet in Arizona, 50% of our high school graduates aren't actually going on to higher education right now. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we're doing at Arizona State is actually, we have a program called Accelerate ASU, and it brings ASU courses into the high school mm -hmm. so that we can get more students ready and exposure to college, uh, make sure that they hit those admissions criteria. The population of people that need learning is giant. And so I think what we need to do is reframe this idea that somehow enrollment is gonna decrease, that somehow people don't need to be learning. <laughs> folks need to be learning, we need to figure out how to get that learning to them. And so I encourage folks to check out our booth and learn more about Accelerate ASU. Absolutely.
Let's turn our attention to technology for a moment, um, as we know that there is a big impact in terms of how technology is shaping the future of higher education. And we're seeing a rise, of course, in generative AI and blockchain. I know you all are utilizing it for digital records and things of that nature. Of course, AR and VR and wearable technology are all being utilized, some in pilot format, and some are really ubiquitous in some areas of higher education. These are all poised to have a significant impact and are already doing so now. With 2023 probably being the year of AI, um, and in, not just um, in technology, but also in higher education, how do you envision, one, how you'll um, integrate AI into the way in which you uh, deploy your learning to your learners? Um, and how do you think it will change the student experience for you? Um, and what can states and institutions that are here do, taking advice from you to prepare for what's happening now and what's possibly coming? Big question, easy answers. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to jump in. I'm, I'm very excited about AI. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you know, I think we're, because we're adapting so quickly, you know, I remind my team at least that it took 46 years for electricity to reach a quarter of the US population. Mm. It took chat less than a year for that same amount of population. Mm. And so what used to be able to have humans incorporate new things slowly, you know, maybe you were a candle person and you were like, I don't know about this electricity thing. I mean, that's just <laughs> happens with every technology. I, I laugh when I hear that Socrates was like, I don't want to write anything down. That's not a quality education. And so I feel like the reason AI, I think, has been scary for folks is this is happening so quickly. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the possibilities, again, to really highly personalize uh, education, make it highly adaptable for the students. I talked about, again, the status quo hasn't worked for many people, right? Only 50% of folks have gone to college have actually graduated, which means for that 50%, what we were doing wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I'm really excited about incorporating AI, uh, personal tutors, um, to personalize the content for people, to make the administrative components much easier and faster. And I'm hoping that by taking an equity first lens at implementing these technologies, we'll actually be able to create a much better experience for our students. Absolutely. Yeah, the generative AI has been really interesting to watch how people reacted to it. I mean, some people just banned it, or institutions banned it completely. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, there are maybe even courses where you know, you want your students to engage with the text and to, to think through something without assistance. But I think for a student today to graduate without having used it, and it was, it was fascinating when we asked students, have you heard about ChatGPT? Many hadn't heard about it even when it was in the news. Right. But I think students today will need to be able to use it in the workplace. I mean, you know, people have been saying that it's not AI that will replace people, it's people using AI that know how to use it will replace those that don't. And so I think institutions need to find a balance between when it's not appropriate and when we want them to focus on, on certain things and critical thinking. But then there's other times when it is, is appropriate and necessary and it, it uh, gives students a chance to still use criti engage critical thinking and communication, but, but also to use AI as a partner to be more productive and to prepare for life after, um, after graduation. And, and real quick on, AR and VR, some of our, our history courses have employed that, and it really enables students to, to go somewhere without leaving their institution, and it's really been beneficial. So I think we do have to embrace these technologies and, and really be smart about 
but I think banning them completely isn't, especially with Gen AI, just isn't an option, and it would do a huge disservice to our students. Mm -hmm. um, I love all the things. I love AI. I had an AI assistant in 2019, and people had no idea what it was. Um, and so I think that there are a couple of things with AI. I think one is what I've said to my leadership team is I expect all of them to regularly be playing with um, all of the tools, but I guess mainly for them probably chat GPT. I like to test all of them, but at least play with that because I think back to Maria's point, we need to get smarter and more effective in the way that we're working with students and that's one way to do it. I know that people think they're writing an original email to every single student who is complaining about their financial aid or whatever it is. It's not, it's the same email over and over again. You've just changed the first name, but for some reason you write it from scratch every time. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, I went to the case conference this summer in New York and there were a number of fundraising professionals who said, oh yeah, we're using, we're using AI to generate letters for our, for our um, donors. And somebody else said, oh my gosh, you know, isn't that, isn't that horrible that you're doing that? Shouldn't it be personalized? And another person, I thought this was a brilliant answer, said, well, I work for the president and I, I ghostwrite his letters anyway. Yeah. So what's the difference? Right. Um, which I thought was genius, right? Like it's such a good reframing of how to think about it. And I think AI should be seen as a thought partner and, a, and like a, a thought generator, but not the answer all the time. So the more that we're training students and employees to, to get there, I think is critical. And then two, two very fast points. I think the other thing is that um, I think we can't be afraid of, of AI and for students, if you, I, I think that faculty should be giving students the opportunity to give ChatGPT the question, ask ChatGPT to answer the question, but the student's assignment is to grade ChatGPT. So did ChatGPT get it right? Because you want, it, you want students to think critically about understanding what has been generated. Um, and I, I was asked on, uh, on another panel, apparently I just go and speak on panels, I was just asked on, an, on, an, on a panel, and this was really interesting, I was in Kazakhstan with Ben Nelson, uh, but I was in Kazakhstan at their Ed Crunch conference, and we were asked about, is the, is the college essay dead mm -hmm. because of AI? And I think we just have to rethink the essay. What is it, like, what does the essay do? Deconstruct, what's the purpose of the essay? Is there another way to teach those same concepts without writing an essay? I don't know the answer to it. I was, like, reacting live. But I've still been thinking about that because I think the challenge for us is not to throw things out, as Chris said. Don't throw it all out, but rethink it and rethink it in the context of that current technology. Rethink it in terms of what's a field trip of today look like? Mm -hmm. Is it is it AR or VR or something like that? So I think we can't, don't be afraid, just go play with stuff. When's just, the last time you played with I stuff? I love that you've gotten your leaders to, you're oh, making I'm them attempting. do it. I'm attempting, I'm not saying they're doing a great job at it. No, they yeah. <laughs> but, but I think it's important, because we're usually the ones that are more afraid of it yeah. than our students. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and I mentioned earlier that AI is just a tool in the toolkit, right? That's right. So as we think about this, we also know that um, students are going to take all different sorts of pathways. So as we deploy education, as you said, if you're only having 50% going on to college right now, what are the rest of them doing? So as we think about apprenticeships, credentials, and certificates and training programs, 
What roles do you think these play for students' success in today's job market? And are there any new models that you're following or um, subscribing to that you think are helping in your, um, from your various lenses? You know, at ASU, we've really taken a both-and model, mm -hmm. I'd say, that it's not about, well, people need career certificates or they need a philosophy yeah. class, but actually, how do you combine these things because people need both? Yes. Um, and so we've actually created a stack of college courses um, in a variety of very high-in-demand fields where someone could take a project management uh, course, like set of courses, and you get a certificate. Mm -hmm and you're also getting college credit, mm -hmm. or a Google IT, or you know, name, name your, your high in-demand field, and we've actually made those available to folks that are not enrolled at ASU, and so they could start a pathway. Awesome. Right? Because many times, again, we're asking people to commit to this four-year four path. Um, mm -hmm. It's very expensive uh, without a sneak peek at it, without knowing really what they're jumping into, mm -hmm. and so these open courses, that we've created, they're called our Universal Learner Courses. You can take them, you can get uh, career certificates, but oh, by the way, you also have college credit, and if you pass four of them, we will admit you into ASU. And so now you've created a both-and solution. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think the Texas system has, has started offering Google certificates and helping students in majors that don't have clear connections to employment um, to encourage them to take them. So I think, I think that is one way that humanities majors thrive in the future is that they, and, and it can't just be offering students, it has to be really advising and, and really maybe even requiring students to, to pair up a philosophy major and a certificate in something mm -hmm. or a certification so that they're prepared for their first job but then they have kind of the broad skills and knowledge that based on how, what they studied in philosophy and what they did that they're able to apply throughout a career um, and, and change careers and continue to learn. And I think these, um, these sort of certificates are going to be, I mean, they'll probably take many of them throughout their life, and so getting the experience of doing it with supervision and, and with faculty will, is also beneficial as well because it prepares them for that type of uh, work life. Mm -hmm. I think, um, so the last time I was in higher ed was 20 years ago. And I was at a community college in Ohio. I don't know where Ohio is. Ohio, Ohio. Oh, O-H-I-O. Um, hello, Ohio. Um, and uh, we were having this exact, and I was at a community college. Hi, community colleges. Look at the, I'm doing, I'm just saying hi to everyone. I'm doing your roll call again. Love it. Um, but anyway, so, but we were talking about this exact same topic. 20, 20 years ago. <laughs> and we're still talking about it. And the ideas that are seen as exciting and innovative now are the same ideas we had 20 years ago. So I think the question is, what can we do differently this time around? And one of the things that I'm watching right now is um, National University, uh, based in San Diego, their psychology, so to your point of like non-STEM majors, their psychology majors um, are now going to be able to work on a certain a, certi a state certification so that they can go into basically like a helping profession mm -hmm. on their way to their bachelors. I think that's fantastic. It's just part of the major, so you're not getting off course, but it allows you to train and be ready to, to work while you're, while you're um, on your way to, to that bachelor's degree. I think that has to be the next thing. I, and that hasn't been as seamlessly integrated into non-STEM fields. Mm -hmm. So that's the creative challenge for all of us is what does that look like in a non-STEM field? How do we find those opportunities? 
Last year, 65% of our students had some sort of experiential learning opportunity. So whether it was that they participated in either uh, an internship or a practicum, we're trying to get to 100%. Because as we also know, it's not just about apprenticeships to help students get that next job, it's also to tell them what they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. I like it when a student says, I did this thing in my major, turns out I don't want to do that thing. Cool, glad you learned that now, we don't want you to learn that later. And I like, you basically said like a sneak peek. Yes. I love that, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we talked about the fact that we are a group of um, not just thinkers, but doers. So I'm thinking about some of the actions that people can take. So you all are very forward thinking, innovative, you're tapping into all sorts of new things. Besides coming to conferences like this where people can you know, interact and hear about innovations, what are some of the best practices you're using? What are you reading, podcasts you're listening to? What are you doing, where are you getting information about some of these things that you're bringing back to your institution and applying it? Where are you getting that information from that these folks can tap into? Chat. Anything interesting you're reading or I, I just read um Brian Rosenberg's book, Whatever It Is, I'm Against It. And he's a he's a former <laughs> college president and talks about the the challenge of change in higher education mm. and, and makes some suggestions. Um, and then um, I, I, did, I read widely fiction, mm. especially a lot about technology and, and potential changes. I read a book, AI 2041, was mm -hmm. different short That's stories. So yeah, and it just makes you think, what does it mean for higher education? Yeah. Um, so reading out of sector is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say the best book I read um, recently was Stephen Cosland's um, book, who was the provost at Minerva before and now has his own company. But it's basically an active learning book um, using AI tools and what does that look like and it's if you want to see what really hyper personalized education can look like I really recommend that book what's the name of it it's it's by Stephen Coughlin I want to say it's active learning in like he's written several active learning books so now I'm trying to remember the exact title of this one but this one's like active learning with AI perfect thank you Suzanne, um, you're an Afrofuturist. I know I you. <laughs> right. Well, I do. If you want to read Afrofuturist, uh, my favorite my favorite series is called Binti, B-I-N-T-I. Um, but anyway, uh, I think um, Imaginable Futures by Jane McGonigal. Um, she's a fellow at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto. That book is fantastic. That's her most recent book. Um, it is fantastic. I think in general, the Institute for the Future's work is fabulous. Um, I think that, so I think that's really great. I, I agree with the reading outside of your field. It helps you to really imagine something different. And then I, one of the things that the Institute for the Future, I, I've worked with them many, many times um, in my previous life and I brought them to Bennett as well. Uh, I also brought the Guild of Future Architects. If you need groups to come in and help you think about the future, so the Guild of Future Architects, it was a team of all um, Afrofuturists, basically, who helped us. Uh, it was, that was a great group. Um, but Institute for the Future, one of their exercises, in, and so you can like go and do, you can do it now, is if you just type in to search, if you just type in the future of whatever your field is, you're going to get a bunch of stuff. <laughs> like, 
the future of the college presidency. Well, there's probably things I don't want to know, but anyway. Um, but it'll tell you, if you just type in that, that little beginning prompt, you're going, and go, don't just go to page one of, of your search results, but keep looking because it will point you to podcasts and to books and to movies and whatever it is. Um, and so I think there are little things like that. I, I like to kind of just test different ideas in that way. So sometimes I, I'm introduced to a brand new topic or a brand new podcast because of that. I don't have a go-to, but love it. Yeah, that's where I'd start. Quickly, what are your predictions for the future of higher education 2024? Lightning round prediction, Chris. I think more of the certificate major pairing. We'll, we'll see more of that. Suzanne. <laughs> mm. I think there's going to, much like we saw the, um, the Screenwriters Guild and the actors protesting Ooh. related to AI, I think we're going to see faculty protests related to AI. Oh. Mm. I'm not encouraging it. I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying. But I think the questions they brought up, I think those are questions faculty have to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. Maria. Yeah. I think we're maybe this is more of a hope than a oh thing. shoot i would have yeah. done a hope if i had known <laughs> i hope that we really uh deconstruct um you know what we're doing and think about what are what are the different ways that we could continue to embed technology to accelerate the work that we're doing together and so that's going to be ai but that's going to be other technology tools that are really out there you know that's anything that helps streamline financial aid process, application process. There's just so many administrative processes, I think. And so I think we're going to see a continued focus on having that more learner-centric ability to, you know, if, if they can do it on Amazon and they can do it on Netflix, why can't education be a little right. bit more like that? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all of our panelists for all of the thoughtful insights that you brought to this conversation and helping us to be future ready. Thank you to our keynote panelists from this session, and thank you to everyone tuning in today. Remember, you can visit completecollege.org to see more content from the annual convening, and we'll see you next time on CCA On the Air.